our devotional this morning as we conclude our Christmas Eve service. I'd like to direct your attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. This is really just more of a devotional thought to send you off into this Christmas season. When you consider the birth stories of anybody, you don't necessarily consider a lot of weight behind that story. For example, I was born on June 25th, 1992 in Hibbing, Minnesota at the hospital there, and anytime I meet somebody new, I don't usually start out with that detail because they don't care, you don't care, nobody cares about where I was born or probably when I was born. And yet, every year, the church has celebrated and placed a significant amount of weight on the birth of a child. That child being Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And that fact is why we place that weight upon his birth. Because like any other person, he was born through somewhat normal circumstances in the sense that he had a mother. And that through the supernatural working of God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the triunity, he was wrought within the womb of Mary and was born 2,000 years ago, one night, in Bethlehem. But that birth is incredibly different than any one of ours. Because while we were born as strictly humans, he was not. He was born truly human. He had a mother. He had flesh and blood. When he lived his life, he was hungry, and he was thirsty, and he was tired, and he slept. All of those are things that are true of somebody who's a human. But he also did things that were not human. They were superhuman. They were supernatural. Things like telling a guy who had been lame from his birth, rise up and walk. Or turning to somebody who had a withered hand and said, stretch forth your hand, and the man whose hand had been withered, stretch forth. Or going to a tomb with an entourage of people weeping and wailing, as was part of the Jewish culture, and turning to two sisters of this man in the tomb and saying to them, I am the resurrection and I am the life, and then turns to a tomb that had been opened and says to a man who had been dead for four days, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had been dead walks out alive. That is not human. That is not natural. And if any one of us walked over to a cemetery and said those words to any one of those graves, nothing would happen because we are mere creatures. Not so with Christ. Jesus was truly human, but he is also truly God. And the reason why the gospel writers emphasize the birth of Jesus is because for them, it was unthinkable, it was unimaginable that God could take on human form, that God could take upon himself a human nature. And, and this was something that for most people was difficult for them to grasp, 
The gods are otherworldly. They're completely separate from us humans. How could it be possible that God himself could take on human form? And the gospel writer says, it is through the power of God's spirit and according to his eternal divine plan, Paul would say. So when we get to Luke, which I read dramatically to the kids, when you get to Matthew, which Mr. Worley read, it's fun, we get warm fuzzies, Most of us probably in our homes have these little nativity sets, or maybe you have a big nativity set. But the one aspect of the birth of Jesus, or the one narrative of the birth of Jesus that we probably don't consider very often and is frankly neglected, is from this very gospel. The gospel according to John. And John begins his gospel in verse 1 by saying, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Here we have the beginning, the description of the beginning of Jesus. And where Matthew begins with angels proclaiming the birth of a child. And where Luke begins with angels proclaiming to Mary that she would give birth to a child, John goes even further back and says, In the beginning of time was the Logos, the Word. And that word not only was with God, but that word was God. The birth of Jesus is not the beginning of Jesus. That's an ancient heresy, actually, that the church eradicated in in Orthodox teaching, where people were saying Jesus is just, he began when he was born of Mary. And that's kind of kind of how he began as as a semi-God, as it were. And the church historically said, no. He was before that. He existed as God in eternity past. So the birth of Jesus, yes, wonderful story. Nativities that we have inside our house, wonderful. But it goes farther back than that. To the very beginning of time and before, in eternity, where God was. One of the things that John describes about Jesus in verse 4, is that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. One of the aspects of Jesus and his reality coming to earth is that he came into a dark time in the darkness of humanity and our sinfulness and was the lone beacon of light. He is the light of the world He is the light that shone through him. And there was somebody who came, whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that through him, that all through him might believe. But John, he, John, was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light. And if you have the New King James Version, like I'm reading from, you'll notice that the light there is the capital L. It's referring to Jesus. 
That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And in verse 12, we read that, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came as a light, but it's not like a light in the sense of like we have these candles here in these pews, where if we didn't have the lights on in this room, those would be illuminating the room to the extent that a candle can. That's not what John is talking about. He's talking about the spiritual light that Jesus came to give. We as humans are essentially spiritually blind and dead. We can see nothing, and we can hear and say nothing. In fact, when Paul in in 2 Corinthians talks about the salvation that we as Christians receive, he uses the terminology from the creation account in, in Genesis 1, where he says, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown that light in our hearts. When you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your darkened body, your darkened mind was flooded with light. And that is what Jesus did when he came 2,000 years ago. But he isn't just described as the light, according to John. Later on in chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus in verse 29. And it says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And when John continues on describing that baptism in verse 32, he says, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he, the Spirit, remained upon him, Jesus. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And this is what John says, John the Baptist. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Why would John use terminology of the light and then turn around and say he's a lamb? Because what John is describing is the work that Jesus would do. Jesus is the light who brings light into spiritually blind and darkened hearts and minds. But how did he do it? Like a lamb. The lamb that each year at Passover, the Jewish head of household would slay. And every time they would kill a lamb for the sacrifice, they were reminded once more of what God requires of those who are sinners. When John sees Jesus coming, he is not confused. He's not seeing things where he's like, hey, there's a lamb down the road. You guys see that? 
He's teaching the followers that were following him in his baptism a very important lesson in this moment. That this Jesus who came not only is the light that provides the spiritual light in our minds and our hearts that we need because we can't apart from him, but that he would affect it as a lamb who would be slain, as Paul says, from the foundation of the world. That this was planned by God that he should come as a lamb. This was not what the Jewish people were expecting. They expected a lion. And when C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia talks about Aslan and how Aslan is not a tame lion, I really imagine that in many ways that is what the Jewish people expected of their Messiah. He would come as the lion of the tribe of Judah who would come and squelch the leadership of Rome, who would establish once more the glories of the kingdom of Israel and bring about exactly what they expected, namely the kingdom on earth. Because they already missed the first fact that we just described. That they were darkened minds, that they had spiritually blind eyes, that they were in darkness and loving that darkness because, as John says, their deeds are evil. This, this was what they were missing. They didn't think they needed a lamb because they didn't think they needed light. You might be sitting here the same way. You're sitting here thinking you're that good person. You're like the Jewish people who think, I'm not blind. I don't need any lamb to die on the cross for me because I'm basically good. In fact, during the Christmas season, even people who aren't even remotely Christian, what are things that they say? Things like peace on earth, goodwill toward men. As long as we all have goodwill towards each other, as long as we all have this sense of peace towards one another, that's all that matters. Because they miss the fundamental point that we're blind in darkness. And that no matter how good we may think we are, in reality, before the face of holy, almighty God, we're dead, we're helpless. And so John says Jesus is the light. And he would give to us that light by coming as a lamb. One of the aspects of the holiness of God that I have just been struck with over and over again is the fact that when people are faced with the transcendent, the holy other, they respond in fear. So you remember the Christmas story that, that we just read to the kids from Luke 2. When the shepherds are in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid, like it says in the King James, I don't think we understand just exactly how real that response is to any, anyone who sees the otherness of a creature such as an angel, the messenger of God. Or anyone who saw a manifestation of God's holiness like Moses. When he's walking by and he's tending the sheep and all of a sudden he sees a bush burning. But it's not being consumed. He says, I'm going to stop and look at this. What, what's this with this bush? It's, it's burning, but nothing's happening. That when God speaks out of that bush, God says, Moses, take your shoes off because the ground that you're walking on is holy. Moses falls on his face. 
When Isaiah sees God and his holiness, what does Isaiah say? He cries out, Lord, woe is me. I'm a man of, I am, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. When he sees the otherness of God, when he sees the holiness of God, he responds in fear because he knows that he does not have light. He's in darkness. And he knows that he needs God to purge the sin from him. And so what does God say? Angel, take your tongs, grab that white hot coal and touch his mouth with it. And when the angel does that, God says to him, see, I have purged your sin. I have purged your lips. That is the foreshadowing, if you will, of the lamb. Because God has to save us from our sins. We cannot save ourselves. There is nothing you can offer to God. There is no good innately within you that you can offer to God. That God would say, well, okay, everyone else is pretty bad, but you're actually pretty decent. I might actually give you a pass. That's not the way God and his righteous holiness works. The only way we can have a right standing before a holy God is if that God makes us righteous and gives us the light we need. And that was Jesus, the light of the world, who affected that light in us as a lamb. But one final thing I want to bring to your attention that John talks about, and I'm going to skip over a lot of stuff by jumping over to John chapter 20. This is after Jesus has already died on the cross. This is after Jesus has already resurrected from the dead. In fact, he's already appeared to the disciples in an upper room where they were hiding because at this point they thought he's dead. And they're thinking, have we just wasted three years of our life following a guy who said these amazing things, who performed these amazing miracles, but maybe he really wasn't the Messiah because he's dead just like all the other great prophets of old are. And Jesus appears to his disciples and he tells them, peace I give to you. As the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you to proclaim my message. But one of the disciples wasn't there. Thomas. And when the disciples go over to Thomas and they say, Thomas, we have seen him. In verse 25, we have seen the Lord. Here's what Thomas says. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And to this day, there are people who are following the tradition of Thomas. You've probably had it happen to you, where you're witnessing to somebody, you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and they say, look, this whole Christianity thing is a farce. You guys are following a myth. If I saw a handwriting in the sky, if I saw all these miracles that supposedly happened in the Bible, then I would believe. The tradition of Thomas is still strong. Well, it comes to pass in verse 26, after eight days, that Jesus' disciples were again inside, but this time Thomas is with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he turns to Thomas, and he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here. And look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. 
And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas saw Jesus preach. Thomas heard Jesus describe himself as the light. Thomas probably heard John the Baptist say that Jesus is the light. He probably heard John the Baptist proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But as up to this point, he still didn't believe any of it. And when the disciples come to him saying, Jesus has risen from the dead, they don't believe him. He doesn't believe them, I should say. And he says, I have to see it. Because everything else that I saw for the last three years, Jesus raising someone from the dead, Jesus making the blind to see, the lame to walk, the mute to speak, all of that means nothing unless I see him risen from the dead. And when Jesus appears eight days later after that, it's really interesting, Jesus doesn't just show up right away. Like if I were writing a script for the movie of this post-resurrected Jesus here, I would have right after John says that, Jesus showing up and John having to eat his words, but God makes him wait eight days until ironically they're in an upper room again, again with the windows closed and the doors locked, again doing so in fear, and again Jesus appears. And he says, peace to you. Of course he says peace because not only was it a standard greeting in ancient Jewish culture, but because they were probably terrified again. And then he turns to Thomas. He says, Thomas, look, take your fingers and touch where the nails were. Take your hand and touch here where I was stabbed with the spear. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas cries out these words, my Lord and my God. Thomas finally understands who the light, who the lamb ultimately is. He's the Lord. He is God. That is what John writes all of these things about in his gospel because literally the next two verses, he says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the light who shines the spiritual light into our blackened hearts and into our darkened minds. Jesus is the lamb who affected that light, who died on the cross, a horrible, cruel death, so that we could experience that light and life. And his call to us as Christians is to proclaim the same words that Thomas did. Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Which is why I appeal to you this day, this Christmas Eve. We can have a wonderful time opening gifts. We can have a wonderful time looking at nativity scenes. We can even have a wonderful time reading the birth and the, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
But if that's all we stop at, we've missed the whole point of that birth narrative. We've missed the whole point of why he came. He, born, he was born so that he could give to us light through his sacrificial death as a lamb that those who embrace him as Lord might be saved. So the first question is, have you done that? Are you like Thomas saying, I'm not going to believe that unless I see some kind of miraculous sign? Or are you going to be one of the ones Jesus said when he says, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed? None of us in this room are 2,000 years old, so none of us have seen him. But we have seen him through the written word of God. And we are called to believe that message. Just as that closing verse there in chapter 20 says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. That's the only way. The only way. So this Christmas season, let us remember the light of the world, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and the one whom we proclaim as Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for the privilege of opening your word. Thank you that you have given to us a revelation that explains who Jesus is. Lord, I don't know in this room if there is somebody in here who does not know Jesus as his or her Savior. They do not see their need for the light to come and shine in their darkness. They do not recognize that the Lamb of God was slain for them, and they have not proclaimed him as Lord. I pray that you would move with your spirit in his or her heart to believe this message and that believing, as John said, they may have life through his name. And as we celebrate this Christmas season, I pray that you would help us to have eyes that see, to have ears that hear the significance of the birth of a child 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem and that we would continue to praise you even as the angels did and to glorify you even as the shepherds did for all the things that we have heard and seen from your word. Be glorified this Christmas season in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.